church family, you may be seated. And as you do, will you take your copy of God's word and turn to Genesis chapter 17. We will look at all 27 verses this morning as we continue in our origin series. This section we're calling The Promise. Before we stand and read some of this together, uh, let me recognize two things. First off, there's more than 25 people in here. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> and we're not being civilly disobedient, folks. Um, you, you didn't come to some secret meeting this morning. There is a separate executive order that is still in place in the state of Virginia that gives guidance to houses of worship. And so uh, what Governor Northam signed on Friday does not uh, affect us. I explained this in more detail in a video on Friday night. If you're curious, because this is all I have time to say about it this morning. If you're curious to know more, you can go onto our social media platforms and, uh, and see what we have to say there. But just know we're, we're not doing anything we're not supposed to be doing uh, this morning. If anything were to change with our COVID protocols, uh, we will communicate that with you quickly and clearly, all right? Also, this last Wednesday, uh, as a nation, we celebrated Veterans Day. It's a time that uh, we recognize those uh, who uh, have served or are all, who are also currently serving uh, our country uh, in one of our, the branches of our armed forces. That's uh, obviously very important here. So many uh, men and women in Hampton Roads uh, serve um, uh, our country in that way. And so before we stand and sing, we would invite those of you that have served or are currently serving uh, in the military to stand so that we may honor you. I'll invite everyone else to join them as we stand together to honor now the word of God. Uh, for the sake of time this morning, I want to just read the first four uh, verses of Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do thank you as we uh, have honored the men and women in this room and our congregation who serve in our military. We thank you for the freedoms for which they stand uh, for the rest of us. Uh, we are grateful, God, that you have chosen in this time and place to grant such great freedoms to us. We recognize that you are the ultimate source uh, of all good things. And we give glory and honor to you first and foremost for these freedoms we enjoy. We pray, God, that you would continue to protect them as long as it, you see fit and it best glorifies you. Father, as we consider your word this morning, a confirmation of your covenant uh, to Abram, God, would you enlighten our hearts as we are reminded again of what you are doing in his life and uh, through that promise, what you are still doing today in ours and in our congregation and in our world. Change us by the power of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
This morning's message is entitled, Confirming the Covenant. Now, if you have spent much time in Genesis at all, if you've uh, read through this cha- this, uh, the chapters of this first book of the Bible, you have likely recognized and maybe even asked the question, why does God seemingly repeat himself so often? God has already reminded Abraham on more than one occasion of the promise that he made to him in Genesis chapter 12. God does so again here in Genesis 17, and it is not the last time that God will do so. And then even with the subsequent generations, Isaac and Jacob, which will follow these chapters, God will do so again, very often revealing new uh, information or bringing clarity to the covenant, but nonetheless restating that which God has already said to be true about Abraham's life. Couldn't Genesis be shorter if God would have just spoken it once? Did we really need for the biblical author to remind us on multiple occasions through the voice of God speaking to the patriarchs this covenant? Well, don't we all need reminding? (laughs) Don't we all need clarification? Not just because we are so apt to forget, but sometimes we just like to be told something that is true and good about ourselves. As many of you know, our youngest son, we adopted from India some uh, years ago, but still regularly, probably once a week or so, he will come to his mother or father and ask, why did you come to India to get me? He knows the story. He knows that he is our son and that we love him. He knows why we came and the great effort that we went through to be able to do so. He just wants to hear it again. It's good for his little heart to hear mom and dad say, this is why we love you. And often in the retelling of that story, because we spent so much time there and there was so many years in the buildup to it, a new detail will emerge, some new piece of information that he didn't know prior to that or was unable to comprehend that we now explain to him. And that's what's happening here. God comes to Abraham to reaffirm to him. Not that Abraham hasn't already believed it. He has believed it and it has been credited to him, the Bible has told us, as righteousness. Now, Abram was not sure how it would happen. And as we saw last week, he attempted to shortcut the promise of God and the advice of Sarai's wife. But nonetheless, God again comes and says in this text, Abram, this is what I am doing for you. This is who you are in me. And this is my covenant for you. So this confirming of the covenant begins with God Almighty reaffirming his covenant and he provides a personal confirmation and a generational sign. These first four verses that we read is God Almighty appearing to Abram and reaffirming his covenant. We're told when this takes place in the life of Abraham in verse one where it says Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him. Now, some time has passed since the end of chapter 16, because in the end of chapter 16, we're told that Abram is 86 years old when 
Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 13 years have passed between Genesis 16 and 17. The longest gap that we have seen in Abram's life so far in the text. Much has likely transpired, but little has likely changed. The great family conflict that was waging, that was raging in uh, the life of Abram and his family between uh, he and his wife and his wife's servant Hagar and their now growing child Ishmael, who is becoming a teenager, has likely not subsided. We are, the biblical author intends for us to move from chapter 16 into 17 with that conflict in our minds as God once again appears to clarify for Abram. Now, very often uh, in our sermon notes, actually my, my custom in our notes is that if I am referring to the Lord, I simply say the Lord. While the Bible provides numerous names for God, I tend to uh, just call him the Lord unless there is a reason not to. And in this sermon, Genesis 17 provides for us a reason for, to call him something else. You'll notice there in verse one that he speaks and identifies himself to Abram as I am God Almighty. This is the Hebrew term El, meaning God, and Shaddai, Almighty. While this is a common name for God in the Old Testament, particularly towards the patriarchs, God most often reveals himself from this moment on to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is the first time that we are seeing this compound name in the scriptures. Literally translated, this is the God who can make things happen by the means of his majestic power and might. This is the God to whom nothing is impossible. And this self-identity of God revealing himself to Abram as God Almighty is important both this week and next week. As we will see God promising both to Abram and then to Sarah that he is going to do something that no one believes to be possible. That he is going to bring about his covenant through a means that is entirely unheard of and can only be credited to a God who can do anything. And he identifies himself, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. God looks into Abram's life and says, Abram, this relationship between you and I requires for you to be blameless. Now, we all know it is impossible for man to be blameless. But we apply what we have already learned from previous chapters and that Abram's blamelessness, his righteousness was something that God had imparted to him, had credited to him, has said was true about him, even though in the previous chapter we see Abram acting in a way that would not be described as blameless. But nonetheless, that is what's required of this relationship. And so the way that Abram walks before God blameless is for him to continue to believe in what God has said to be true because that belief is credited as righteousness. And then he says that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly greatly. 
reminding Abram again and again from what we have already seen in previous chapters that God will do what he has promised to do. And Abram responds in the exact way that any of us confronted with Almighty God would. In verse 3, he fell on his face. While there are those in our world who would think that if in their vernacular, if God exists and one day I see him, I will tell him what I think of him. (laughs) No, they won't. And if that's you this morning, friend, hear me clearly. No, no, you won't. When we are confronted with holy, almighty God, the only reaction that we have is to fall on our face, just as Abram does here. And God says to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God again speaks in the life of Abram, 99 years old, having birthed only one son, but not with his wife, with his wife's servant, Hagar, who God has clearly said will not be the heir to the promise. And yet God says, you're not only going to be the father of one child, you are going to be the father of a multitude of nations. It is not just one family that you will be the father of. It is not even just one nation that you will be the father of, but a multitude of nations. Put yourself in Abram's place, 99 years old, 89-year-old wife who God is saying, it's not going to be with Hagar, it's going to be with her. Imagine the amount of faith that is required. Imagine if, if this were you, what, what, the, how, how would you respond to the promise of God? We're going to see how Abram responds in a moment. He responds in the same way that his wife responds in the next chapter, and I think it's what all of us would likely do. But before we get to that, we see Abram finally becoming Abraham, which I'm glad for because now I can just call him Abraham. Abram's name has changed as a preemptive confirmation. Look at verse five and six. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. So what God promises to Abram here by changing his name is that his name is now going to represent this reality that God is saying is true about him. The name Abram literally translated into exalted father. The name Abraham literally translates into father of a multitude. Meaning what God has promised in verse 4 and confirms in verse 5 is now true about Abraham in his core. Because your name in biblical times represented so often who you were. And God says you're no longer just exalted father. You're now father of a multitude. Imagine with me if you will. Abram going to those who lived in his household. And he had a large household. He had amassed great wealth and many there claimed to be a part of his house, but yet none were his direct descendant through his wife, Sarah. But could you imagine him going to them later and saying, God has changed my name, 99 years old, childless with my wife, God has changed my name. 
My name is now the father of a multitude of nations. Could you imagine those who have respect for Abraham now calling him Abraham, father of a multitude? Yet here he is, having not realized in physical form the promise of God through the birth of a child, through his wife. But God will, has promised to make him fruitful, to make him into a great nation, and, to make, and, and a, new, uh, a new detail emerges here in verse 6, that he shall make him the father of kings, that kings shall come from you. Now, this same, uh, this same promise is made later, and we're going to pick back up uh, that idea here in a few moments. Continue with me in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be between be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So God, again, tells Abraham this great story. This great story that is not a story of the past, but a story of the future. A story that God has already revealed to Abraham on multiple occasions. A story that Abraham believes to be true, and that belief has credited him as righteousness, and yet he does not see it clearly. He does not know how he will possess it. He does not know how his place in this story could possibly be true, and yet God tells it again. Abram. You're going to be the father of a multitude. There will be many offspring after you. And my covenant will not just be with you, Abraham, but my covenant will be with your son and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and all those who come after them. And not only will I covenant with them and be their God, but this land that you are a sojourner in, this land that you do not possess, this land that is ruled by pagans will be yours. It will be theirs. And I will be their God. This is not new information. But this is, the God, this is God reaffirming to Abraham that he will do what he has promised to do. When we read the scriptures, church family, so often this is what God speaks to us. He speaks to us reaffirmation of what he has said to be true. And you may not know how you get there. You may not be able to connect the dots and and see how you're going to get from this point in your life to the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God, of eternal life and eternal blessing in him. But know this, if God has said it to be true about you, it is true about you, just as what he has said to be true about Abraham and his descendants were true about them then in that moment. The promises of God are a reality, whether we recognize them or not. They are truth standing before us, just as this is truth standing before Abraham. We read this almost in reverse. Because if you have spent any time around the church at all, you you know the story of Abraham. 
Even if all you have done is study the New Testament, Abraham's referred to so many times in the New Testament. You have an idea of who this guy is and you know the end before you get here. But imagine reading this for the first time. Imagine being Abraham and being so grateful that now 13 years after the last time God has spoken and now you're 99 and God speaks again and says, it's still true. It's still true, Abraham. It's still true, church. What God has promised, he will see to the end. Then God provides here in changing his name, this reality for Abraham, even though it is not physical reality yet, it's, it's this personalization of this promise. But now we see a generational sign given by God where Abraham and all his descendants are expected to be circumcised as a sign of their participation in the covenant. Look with me in verses 9 through 13. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now, before we look at these verses, let me just clarify something because I recognize there are children in the room. I'm not going to explain what this is. I'll let that just be a fun car ride home. But God is providing here now for Abram an additional piece of information, a sign, a sign of the covenant. Now we may read this and think, wow, what an interesting sign. But circumcision was in truth a fairly common practice in the ancient Near East. It wasn't practiced by every tribe and people But we do know that there were those who dwelt in Canaan, even before Abram arrives there, who practiced circumcision. There were those in Mesopotamia and even in Egypt who practiced circumcision. Very often, this practice was associated as a marriage ritual or for societal inclusion. But here, and the only instance that we know of from antiquity, is it a religious practice instead of a societal one, making it different from the other peoples who practiced circumcision. And God demands it. He demands it of Abraham, he demands it of Abraham's household, and he demands it of the generations that will come after them. He says, anyone who is going to be in your house, And he goes into detail of that it's going to be those who are born into your house, it's going to be when they're eight days old, those who come into your house outside of your family, it's going to be when you take possession of them and they claim to be part of this house, you are then going to circumcise them. God demands it as a sign, but here's the question we must ask, who is it a sign for? Because of the nature of circumcision, it was obviously not a sign for people outside. Because, well, as long as you have your clothes on, it's very hard to know. So why God demands this? And why does he call it a sign? And who can see it? Really, there are only two that can, God 
and the man. So by the nature of the sign, it is a personal reminder of one's inclusion in the promise of God. When this man would look at himself in his private moment, here's what he would be reminded of. I belong to God. It was a representation and a reminder, not of some sort of social inclusion, but of a spiritual reality that was true about Abraham and that would be true about many of his descendants. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, during the time of the Exodus, when all of the first five books are being recorded for us so that we can know the story, we read this and and listen to the change that happens. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. In Genesis 17, circumcision is this personal sign of inclusion in the covenant of God between he and Abraham and his descendants. But it was always intended to be more meaningful than some rote religious practice. Because others in ancient times practiced this rite, clearly not all who were circumcised were included in God's promise. We'll even see this here in this chapter is Ishmael is circumcised by Abraham and yet God clearly states that he is not part of the covenant. Then who was? Who was included in the covenant? It's not those who were circumcised of their flesh, but those who were circumcised of their hearts. Those who believed in God and had that belief credited to them as righteousness, just as Abraham was. Yes, he passed on a physical sign, but that physical sign did not make one right with God. What has and always will make one right with God is circumcision of a heart. Moses recognizes this in instructing the people of God that it is not about what we do on the outside, but it is about what happens on the inside that truly matters. And unless our hearts have been circumcised, then we will not love God right. We will not live for God right. And ultimately, we will not find life outside of what God does for us. Life is not found in physical circumcision, but in the circumcision of our hearts. And that was true in the ancient days, and it is true today. Finally, in this section, we see that any in Abraham's household or line not circumcised are to be cut off from his people. Look at the last verse of this section. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you're wondering, the pun is intended here by the biblical author. The idea of the people being cut off is exactly how we are to read it. God says, be cut or be cut off. Failure to comply for Abraham and his descendants signifies the breaking and nullification of the covenant. That if one was not willing to be circumcised, he would, take, he would take no part in what God was promising to Abraham and to those generations. Those who failed to be circumcised were not part of the community. 
They were not part of the people of God. Remember, this is not societal. It is a religious community act to be a part of what God is doing. And God says if someone is not willing to do that, outward sign, he does not have a part in what I am doing in these people. He should be cut off. Next, God Almighty provides further clarification of the covenant and Abraham responds in faith. This begins with Sarai's name also being changed and a name is given to their heir. Look with me in verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become uh, become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. We'll stop there for a moment before we read the rest of the section and just recognize what God is also doing in Abram's wife. Just as God has changed Abram's name to Abraham, he has now changed Sarai's name into Sarah. Now Abram went from being exalted father to father of multitudes. Sarah, Sarai went from princess to Sarah, princess. It, it means the same thing. Just a dialectic change. Changing her name from the pagan name that she had from Ur of the Chaldeans in their former homeland, now to a new name that God has given her, but keeping the meaning the same, princess. Why princess? Because princesses birth kings. And just as God has promised to Abraham that in his line would be kings, he promises the same thing about his wife, Sarah, now, that kings of people shall come from her. This is, again, a new detail in God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah. But it is one that we see unfold in a very important way over the course of Scripture in Numbers 24. Again, during this time of Exodus, before the people go into the promised land, there's these three chapters that deal with this really strange individual named Balaam. And Balaam, the Bible tells us, was a wicked man, and he was actually tempted by a wicked king of Moab who was scared to death of the Israelites that were coming into the land. And he brings this wicked man who happened to, the Bible tells us, have his eyes and ears open to the word of God. And here's what Balaam says in Numbers 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Imagine a few hundred years after God is dealing with Abraham here in Genesis 17, ultimately his people end up in captivity in Egypt and for hundreds of years they are slaves. And now they're this ragtag group of slaves wandering around in the wilderness and this guy says, it's not happening right now, but eventually a scepter, a king, shall rise out of Israel. This becomes fulfilled in the life of David where God renews his covenant with David as king of Israel and establishes his throne forever and then is even more so fulfilled in the life of Jesus 
It's why Matthew, in uh, introducing his uh, gospel account in Matthew chapter 1, who's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. All the way back here in Genesis 17, here's what we're promised. A king is coming. And we see glimpses of that king some thousand years later in the life of David. But we see fully that king in the life of Jesus. It may seem to us to take God a while to fulfill his promises, but know this, God is faithful to do so. Go back with me to verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, (laughs) but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall, shall bear to you at this time next year. Abraham still can't see how God Almighty can make happen what he has promised to happen. And he does exactly what Sarah will do in chapter 18. Upon hearing this news, he laughs. Now, previously, he has fallen on his face before God in this chapter, but now, upon hearing this, that God is really going to do it, and God's now set a timeline on it. It's going to happen, Abraham, at 100 years old for you and 90 for Sarah. He laughs. Not only does he laugh, but God takes that laughter and names Isaac after it because the name Isaac literally translates he laughs. You see, when God works, sometimes all we can do is laugh. <laughs> Not at him, but at our own lack of faith. Abraham and Sarah will both laugh at this news. But can you imagine them later in life watching Isaac grow and laughing, reminded every time how they laughed when they called this name of their son? They're not laughing at God, but they're laughing at just the majesty of how God could work even in the midst of their lack of faith. So Isaac would come and Isaac would remind them daily of God's faithfulness to them even when they laughed. Abram doesn't see it and so he asks here in these verses, what about Ishmael? Why why can't you just do this to Ishmael? He's already 13. I'm already watching him grow into a young man. And God clearly says in verse 19, no. God's giving clarity now to the covenant. It will not be through your shortcut. It will be through your wife, Sarah. It will be through the son who you have, she has not yet bore you, Isaac. But as we saw last week, as we look forward to these verses, God will bless Ishmael. And Ishmael will serve somewhat as this shadow figure and his nations, his, these 12 princes promised in chapter 20 really serve as, as this aside to what God is doing through his primary line of promise, reminding the descendants of Abraham what happens when we seek to 
circumvent the will of God for our own. Finally, Abram obediently circumcises all the males in his household. Pick up it with me in verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or brought with him money, every male among the, uh, the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with them. What we see here in these last few verses is obedience. These last six verses, really, the narrative changes into a, a matter of fact. Here is what happens. And it follows the same pattern of the verses that preceded it, where they were told that your children will be, you will be circumcised, your children will be circumcised, and those who are in your household that are not of your line will also be circumcised. And Abraham does exactly as God instructed. The righteousness that Abraham had that was credited to him because of his faith becomes action. He does what God has told him to do because people of faith respond in obedience. And that's what Abraham does. At 99, this action likely seemed somewhat strange to this man. At 13, I can promise you it seems strange to his son. And yet he obeys because people of faith obey the Lord. So what? God Almighty keeps his covenant with Abraham by circumcising the hearts of all who come to him in faith. Folks, this, is, this text, Genesis 17, is about a physical sign of the covenant. But as we've already seen through Scripture, even Old Testament Scripture, there was a quick understanding in the people of God that the physical sign was not what saved that there was a spiritual reality, a spiritual transformation that had to happen in one's life. And it's not something that we could do on our own or someone could do to us like physical circumcision. It was one that only God could do. That God was the one who circumcised Abraham's heart. That God was the one that circumcised his descendants' heart. And God is the one who circumcises our hearts. He's the one who cuts us deeply when we come to faith in him. And God is still keeping his covenant today to Abraham that he will be the father of a multitude of nations by the circumcising power of Jesus Christ working in our hearts. In Romans chapter four, the apostle Paul picks up on this idea. He writes this, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised by who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I know there's, it's, it's wordy, 
Listen to what Paul's saying. Everybody comes through the same path. Circumcised, following in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the people of Israel of the Old Testament. The uncircumcised, Gentiles, coming to faith through Jesus Christ. All of us are right with God, not by an outward expression, but by an inward reality. That there is no physical act that we can do in this world that will save us, no matter your ethnicity. And this is what Paul, Jew of Jews, he calls himself in another place in Scripture. That there was anybody who could rely on his actions as an Israelite, it was Paul. And he says, all of that I consider rubbish. It is only by faith. It is only through the inward change that God brings in our lives that one may be right with him. He says it in a little different way in Colossians 2. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You say, what was nailed to the cross? What was nailed to the cross was the idea that we could ever keep the law perfectly on our own. What was nailed to the cross was the one who did keep the law perfectly for us, who did live an obedient life to God perfectly so that we might be saved. And then this circumcision without hands is the circumcision of God who reaches into our lives and cuts out that dead flesh heart and gives us a heart that beats for him. Our circumcision is not one of flesh, but one of spirit. One on the inside brought about only by King Jesus who makes us alive in him. So Christian, you are an heir to the promise of Abraham today because he is your father if you have been circumcised in heart. Unbeliever, whether in the room or watching with us online, hear my appeal to you. Hear the appeal of scripture. There is but one way to be right with God. And it is for you to come to him in faith as he reaches into your life, not with human hands, but with his power. And he circumcises your heart, separating flesh, nailing it to the cross, putting it on Jesus, all of your sins, so that you might be saved. That is your only hope before God Almighty. Let's pray together. God, we recognize that you are a mighty, sovereign, all-powerful God and that we are not, that we are sinners in desperate need of a circumcision of heart. We are those who fall prostrate before you we are those who can't see beyond our own limitations. We, like Abraham, sometimes get 
lost in how you're going to do what you have promised to do. But God, the people of faith here in this room gathered, confess this truth, that it is by Jesus alone that we are right with you. So let that be what we rely on. Let that be what we point to. Let no physical act in this world be our hope, but let our hope only be in the work that you've done in our hearts. I pray for those present and watching with us who would also say, I've never done that. I've always believed that I could be good enough, that I could please God on my own. Would your Holy Spirit convince them otherwise, convict them in their hearts, change them, we pray, by the power that you alone have, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.